Instead of receiving any such letter of excuse from his friend, as Elizabeth half expected Mr Bingley to do, he was able to bring Darcy with him to Longbourn. I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet. And this is Reading Jane Austen, and our last episode on Pride and Prejudice. I've really enjoyed doing this. Rereading the book closely and talking about it in chunks, it's really made me see things about the book that I'd never noticed before. Yes, well, I've enjoyed it too, for more or less the same reason, but also really looking hard at the way she does things. And, of course, the other thing I've really enjoyed is fitting it into the history and into Jane Austen's life, both of which I've got a lot of pleasure from. Hmm. Whereas you've looked towards the future. I've I've tended to look sort of at the contemporary scene. Hmm. At the end of the episode, we'll talk about which book we'll be doing next. But before that, let's discuss the final chapters of Pride and Prejudice, chapters 58 to 61. What's your one-sentence summary? When Elizabeth confronts Darcy to thank him for helping Lydia, he renews his proposals, which she accepts not very fluently, but with gratitude and pleasure. And although Mr Bennet at first thinks she is out of her senses, Mrs Bennet is first silenced and then verbose about having such a handsome and tall man as a son-in-law. And in the last chapter, we learn what happened to everyone after the happy day when Mrs Bennet gets rid of her two most deserving daughters. <laughs> right. Six Jane Austenisms and only one and. Okay. I actually reused one of the same bits as you. Having been taught to hope by Lady Catherine, which was contrarywise to the effect she intended, Darcy tells Elizabeth that his affections and wishes are unchanged and she receives his proposal with gratitude and pleasure, although because of her previous dislike, she has to convince first Jane, then Mr. Bennet, that she really loves him. But Mrs. Bennet is delighted to have two more daughters married, even though they both end up moving to Derbyshire and living within 30 miles of each other. Mine only had five Jane Austenisms and one and. Yes. So, of course, this is the section where we get... The big, real proposal scene. In your standard romantic novel, the proposal scene is the climax and the highlight and the big romantic moment. And in this one, it starts out with Darcy saying his affections and wishes are still unchanged, but then we don't hear Elizabeth's response. And I think actually in Jane Austen, we almost never get the lady's response. No, we get that bit in Emma of what did she say, just what a lady should. It is one of those things that kind of contradicts this popular perception of Jane Austen as the great romantic novelist, that in all this build-up to this should be the key point, and it's mostly not. We get hardly any dialogue in it. Yes. When you talk about the dialogue, I mean, actually, there was quite a lot of dialogue from Darcy. And as I went through it so slowly this time, I was sort of a little bit taken aback When you listen to him, it sounds as though he's going into a sort of confession at some sort of evangelical religious meeting. You get this sort of thing. What did you say of me that I did not deserve? For though your accusations were ill-founded, formed on mistaken premises, my behaviour to you at the time had merited the severest reproof. It was unpardonable. I cannot think of it without abhorrence. And then a bit later... The recollection of what I then said of my conduct, my manners, my expressions during the whole of it is now and has been many months inexpressibly painful to me. Well, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. The first is I love the fact that even now we see Darcy can't stop himself from using big words. Yeah, so, yeah like unpardonable and abhorrence. Yeah. But 
Two things that really struck me about this. First is the fact that between Rosings and Pemberley, we didn't see any of Darcy's transformation. So this is giving us a picture of what happened, of why he was so different at Pemberley. That might be part of the reason it's there. But also, it's really just parallel to his first proposal at Rosings. He makes the proposal. In this case, it's a much more romantic proposal, what you see of it. But then you get all this follow-up explanation. In the previous proposal, all the follow-up explanation was about why it was a bad thing, but he's going to anyway because he can't help himself. And this time he's verbalizing everything he's gone through to bring him here. So it's like he just, he's overthinking everything and has to share it with Elizabeth as he did the last time. Oh no, I feel it is a continuation of the last one. It's just an aspect of Darcy that I wasn't quite as aware of, (laughs) of his continual, you know, internalising things, all his self-examination, because he even goes on to this other bit where he says, I've been a selfish being all my life. In practice, the no in principle. As a child, I was taught what was right, but I was not taught to correct my temper. I was given good principles, but left to follow them in pride and conceit. So now he's saying, it wasn't really my fault. It was my parents. They did it all wrong. They spoiled me. The other thing, though, about this is Elizabeth is the only person he'd talk to like this. Oh, yes. So again, it's like he's normally very reserved, maybe slightly less reserved when he's on his own with Bingley or Colonel Fitzwilliam, but Elizabeth is the only person he's ever been able to really spill yeah. his heart and guts to. Yes, but that then gives us this picture of why he's a proud, reserved man. Is <laughs> because he's there looking at himself and looking at his feelings and why am I doing this? Am I doing it right? But somehow he lost a lot of his glamour for me when I read that in great detail. Oh, see, I found he didn't lose his glamour. I saw it as being, again, him being able to speak from the heart to Elizabeth, which he doesn't to anyone else, and articulating the scenes we didn't see of him going through this oh. process of re-examination. Yes. No, well, I'm just sort of I'm reacting to this gut feeling I've got. Is it this person who's always brooding on, have I done the right thing? Am I good? Whose fault is it? <laughs> See, I don't think he did any sort of self-examination like that until after Elizabeth rejected him and told him what she thought of him. I think that was what kick-started this kind of self-examination. Based on what he said at Netherfield, for instance, I think he was basically... Up until then, I'm pretty satisfied with how he was as a person. I suppose you can say that when you think of the way he addressed her the first time. Yeah. Yes, okay, I give in to that, but <laughs> I still say I got this feeling of almost him saying, poor little me, look what's happened to me, forgive mm. me. Yeah. Anyway. There is that. Yes, well, we can disagree on that one. <laughs> we can agree to disagree. The other thing I noticed in that scene is, and I may have mentioned this before, Every now and then you get this faint hint that in spite of being predominantly serious, Darcy does have a sense of humour. And the line that I love here is him saying that when he first arrived, his object was simply to show her that he wasn't so mean to resent the past. And then he says, how soon any other wishes introduced themselves, I can hardly tell. But I believe in about half an hour after I had seen you. 
Yes. So I think it's sort of quite funny. Well, I'd always thought of Darcy as being quite witty. I mean, the things that made him seem glamorous were the things he said to Miss Bingley and the sort of put down to Sir William Lucas mm. and that sort of thing, that he was very sharp and sort of funny or sardonic, perhaps, in yeah. the things he said, which made him seem a proper sort of <laughs> glamour hero. Yeah. But this is the first time he's turned it on himself. This is the first time he's been self-deprecating about it. I suppose it is, yes, yes. Now, one other thing about the proposal scene is that I I can't remember where it was. I think it might have been in a little YouTube video. Someone said that in Jane Austen, proposals made indoors are rejected and proposals made out of doors are accepted, which when you look just at Elizabeth, it's true. Yeah. But... Even if you just look at Pride and Prejudice, Jane is a complete counterexample to this. But also, and more importantly, what strikes me is, and again, this comes back to Jane Austen not really caring that much about the proposal scenes. In many cases, we don't even know where the proposal happened. I was going through the others and, okay, Catherine Morland gets proposed to by Henry Tilney when they're outdoors. So yeah, tick on that one. But... Eleanor and Marianne, in neither case do we know where the proposal happened. No clue with Marianne. With Eleanor, we know the day it happened. We know Edward went out for a walk, but the assumption is he came back. And so possibly... And like Bingley, um, sort of hung around until it was the right time to speak. But we don't know that. Fanny Price, we have no idea when Edmund proposes to her. Emma, okay, that's another tick. Emma's outdoors. And then... Anne Elliot is the only other heroine who actually refuses a proposal because she's proposed to by Charles Musgrave and she refuses. But again, we have no idea whether that was indoors or outdoors. Yeah. We, and Wait a minute. No, Emma, Emma sort of semi-refuses Mr. Mr. Elton, yes. True. I suppose her refusal of Mr. Elton, well, that's in a carriage. So yes. <laughs> is that indoors or outdoors? And then yeah. with Anne and Wentworth, do you see his proposal as the letter... Or is the conversation they have out of doors on the gravel path? I take it as being out of doors. So again, that is an outdoors one. But like I said, there's just, I feel, not enough evidence to make anything out of this difference between indoor and outdoor oh, no, proposals. No, no, no. I mean, the, the moment you said it, I thought, oh, no, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Elizabeth refuses Mr. Collins indoors. Jane accepts Mr. Bingley indoors. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when you've got that... You know, what? how do you go on? Yeah. Charlotte probably is out. No, Charlotte accepts Mr Collins outdoors, I think. It says she snuck out to accidentally meet him outside. Correct. Yes, yeah. Anyway, no, no, I, 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 don't, I don't really think that that's a terribly pertinent thing to be talking no. about. Yeah, let's talk about the scene with her father, because I think that's a really interesting scene in this chapter. Oh, yes. It has that really sad bit, and I'll read it out because I think there's quite a few things we can unpack in it, where he says, I know your disposition, Lizzie. I know that you could be neither happy nor respectable unless you truly esteemed your husband, unless you looked up to him as a superior. Your lively talents would place you in the greatest danger in an unequal marriage. You could scarcely escape discredit and misery. My child, let me not have the grief of seeing you unable to respect your partner in life. You know not what you were about. Now, I think on the one hand, this is quite sad, a reflection on Mr. Bennett's regretting the decisions yeah. he made in life, but it's really quite insulting to Elizabeth because what he, he's basically, and I didn't actually make this connection until I read it this time, if you think in Sense and Sensibility to, to Eliza in that who 
he is trapped in this loveless marriage to Colonel Brandon's brother and she starts having affairs and she gets divorced and she just goes down and down and down. And that is basically what Mr. Bennett is saying will happen to Elizabeth, that she won't be happy and she won't be respectable and she could scarcely escape discredit. Now, that is basically saying Elizabeth does not have the moral foundation to cope with an unequal marriage. It's saying that Elizabeth is not as good as Charlotte Lucas. No, well, I mean, the point is he knows that she's not likely to sort of be picking up lovers, yeah. whereas Elizabeth, the lovers would be there for the taking if she wanted them. Yes, but he's not giving her credit for principles. Well, he's not giving her credit for what she would do, which is the same as Charlotte Lucas, right? This is what I'm going to do. Now I've had that part of the bargain. This is me fulfilling my part of the bargain. Yeah. Which is a legitimate thing to do. Yeah. In what is just a basic marriage for security. Yeah. Then also there's the point that, of course, really jars to a 21st century reader. The bit about she needs to esteem her husband and look up to him as a superior. Whereas I like to think of them as, 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 equal, as equals. And so does she. Yes. I mean, all the way she's having goes at him. Yeah. So I think that's quite sad in the insight it gives us to Mr. Bennett's perspective on his experience. But it is, at many levels, quite insulting to Elizabeth. Yes. But then it moves on to a Mr. Bennett bit that I absolutely love, which is after Elizabeth has convinced him that she loves Darcy and she tells him that what Darcy has done for Wickham... And Lydia, he's then really pleased about this and says, it will save me a world of trouble and economy. <laughs> oh, yes, that's <laughs> a beautiful bit. Had it been your uncle's doing, I must and would have paid him. But these violent young lovers carry everything their own way. I shall offer to pay him tomorrow. He will rant and storm about his love for you and there will be an end of the matter. I just love the way this scene starts serious. Yes. but finishes on this comic note, and we do see Mr. Bennett, once he accepts that Elizabeth loves Darcy, being pleased and giving his blessing. Yes. And then, of course, there's Mrs. Bennett's reaction, which is also incredibly funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Particularly when you think back to Jane's comment in an earlier chapter about Mrs. Bennett's affectionate solicitude. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it is an affection. She does, I mean, she does want everything to go nicely for Elizabeth. Yes. I love the fact that when Elizabeth first tells her, she is absolutely silenced, possibly for the first time in the entire book. <laughs> yes. She has nothing to say. And then she comes back and she has his big thing about he's so handsome and so tall and she'll have everything that's wonderful and pray apologise for my having disliked oh. him so much before. I hope he will overlook it. Yeah, I mean, as if Elizabeth Cornwall would. <laughs> One of the things I felt I ought to say, now we've come to the end, is that in the earlier podcasts I was nagging away at the idea of what did Jane Austen think about love, what are her views on this? And then I haven't said that for sort of weeks, but I think it's probably because we came to the conclusion, I think, that we agreed on in the piece when we were talking about Charlotte's marriage, and I think we talked the whole thing through and came to our conclusion then. Which I think was, in essence, that while Charlotte's decision to marry Mr Collins is accepted and it is seen that she can make a go of it, Jane Austen does feel one should strive for a marriage with love and respect, not just a marriage of convenience. Yes, no matter how, how moral almost you're going to be and you say, I'm taking this on but I'll do my absolute best. Mm. Unlike Mr Bennett, 
mm. who turns round and it wasn't what I wanted, so I'll be rude about it. The final chapter is really just a tying up of all the loose ends and giving you a bit of a snapshot of what's going to happen to the characters in the end. But there are a couple of things I wanted to say about it. We've been with Kitty and Mary throughout the whole book and in this chapter we do get a little bit of a hint of what happens to them next because it says that Kitty is removed from the influence of Lydia's example and she spends more time at Pemberley and she becomes less irritable, less ignorant and less insipid. And then what happens to Mary is Mrs Bennet sort of forces Mary to go into company. Yeah, and then it says that she was no longer mortified by comparisons between her sister's beauty and her own, so it was suspected by her father that she'd submitted to the change without much reluctance. Yes. But of course, what we don't get told is whether they got married, or indeed whether Georgiana got married. We don't get told that in the book. Or, or poor Mr Burke. Did yes. she get married? <laughs> But there is, apparently in the biographical memoir of Jane Austen, written by her nephew... James. Yeah. Well, James Austen Lee. He actually says that Jane Austen told members of the family, I'm not sure who, that Mary obtained nothing higher than one of her Uncle Philip's clerks in marriage, but that Kitty was satisfactorily married to a clergyman near Pemberley. Well, that's one of those ones. When I first read that, I thought Jane Austen had it in for Mary. But if the sisters had all gone, Mm. And there she is in there by her mother and people flattering her Mm. because she's Miss Bennet Mm. with sisters married to all these rich people. Mm. Even though she married one of Mr Phillips's clerks, she is a sort of a shining star of Meriton. Uh The picture that James gives is that people would say, oh, what happened to so-and-so? And And she'd say, this happened to them, so she told them bits and pieces. Mm. But he probably wasn't interested. It was probably his sisters (laughs) who kept saying to her, and what happened to so-and-so and and what happened? Because they were younger than he was. Mm. They were probably the ones who were fussing for what happened, and he was much further on trying to remember. (laughs) And that was something he remembered anyway. One thing about Lydia that I actually struggled with quite a bit when I first read the novel was I wasn't sure how to take the sentence. She retained all the claims to reputation which her marriage had given her because I was never sure whether that was talking about the loss of reputation because of the circumstances leading to her marriage or the restored reputation by the marriage. I ended up coming to the conclusion it meant the restored reputation, and because it does say, in spite of her youth and her manners, she retained all the claims to reputation. So I I think this means that it's not going to be a happy marriage, but it's not going to be a marriage that ends in disgrace either, at least not for her. Well, we don't know know what Wickham's been getting up to. It's basically saying, yes, she didn't pick up a whole lot of lovers along the way as she went from one garrison town to another. Yes. I think the subtext is that Wickham did because it talks about... Lydia coming to stay at Pemberley when her husband was gone to enjoy himself in London or Bath. Well, I suppose that could mean he's enjoying himself gambling or he's enjoying himself with women. Who knows? But Yes, yeah. who knows? But, but, she, I mean, but it... she basically stays a respectable matron. She always overspends her income. She presumably has kids and, yeah. Or does she? We're not told. Yeah. In this jumping into the future, though, it's quite interesting. She talks about the restoration of peace because she says about Lydia and Wickham, their manner of living, even after the restoration of peace, dismissed them to a home, was unsettled in the extreme. 
When she took Pride and Prejudice to the publisher, she didn't know that Napoleon was going to go into Russia and come a cropper. She didn't know that Wellington was going to win the Battle of Salamanca and that would be the end of the Peninsula War. These things hadn't happened. And yet she takes it so for granted, even though they've had sort of practically 30 years of war, that there's going to be peace. So when was the restoration of peace? The restoration of peace was 1814. That's when when Napoleon was defeated. Mm -hmm. And then he comes back for Waterloo in 1815. Yep. So definitely not till after this book was published. Well, she took it to the publisher, I think at the beginning of 1813. No, it was in the autumn of 1813 that it came out Mm -hmm. and this is the only time in this book we have any recognition that there was a war going on Mm -hmm. when she wrote first impressions all the time she was turning it into pride and prejudice there were wars going on and the army went after them and then they came back again Mm. i mean as far as she's concerned it really hardly impinges on her at all I suppose when one comes to think about why the war seemed so unimportant to them, you have to take into account how terribly successful the Navy had been against France. Since Trafalgar in 1805, I think, they really hadn't had any worries about invasion. So even though France was just across the Channel, they could think of it as a foreign war and people like Wellington were off fighting foreign wars in Spain and Portugal just as they had been before that in India. Mm -hmm. The last thing I really wanted to say about this section is this book has such a killer opening line, it's a truth university acknowledged, but the closing sentence of the book is about the gardeners and it says Darcy as well as Elizabeth really loved them and they were both ever sensible of the warmest gratitude towards the persons who, by bringing her into Derbyshire, had been the means of uniting them. Okay, (laughs) it's kind of nice that uniting them are the last words, but it just, you're left thinking, and that's it? (laughs) Um, It's, you know, we're we're suddenly talking about the gardeners and we're reflecting back on something that happened. There's no killer end sentence like, like there is at the start. And again, I think that's actually quite typical of Jane Austen. She has these great openings and these rather non-memorable closings. Yes, yes. Well, it's a bit hard to even think. They're usually about money or about something quite quite ordinary. Mm. Did you have a favourite sentence in these chapters? Well, the one I've chosen, you know, I think it does show Elizabeth being fairly witty. Elizabeth coloured and laughed as she replied, Yes, you know enough of my frankness to believe me capable of that. After abusing you so abominably to your face, I could have no scruple in abusing you to all your relations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mine is once again a Mr. Bennett line. Yes. It's at the end of his conversation with Elizabeth about Darcy. And he says, If any young men come for Mary or Kitty, send them in, for I am quite at leisure. Yes, I love that one too. Yes. In our first episode on Pride and Prejudice, we talked about Mrs. Bennet, and so it seems only fitting that for the last episode, we should talk about Mr. Bennet. Just reflecting back on what I just chose as my favourite sentence, I think if you were looking for the wittiest lines of dialogue in the book, Mr. Bennet would have to have more of them than any other character, even Elizabeth. 
Yes. Elizabeth's a sort of passing. His are somehow more pointed. Yes. Yes. Probably more deliberate. I think possibly the danger of that is we spend so much time enjoying his wit and his cleverness and his humour that it's quite easy to miss the fact that he's not necessarily a particularly nice person. No, but, but um, well, I suppose one of the things that I feel almost before we talk about what he's like is that thing I kept noticing, particularly in the earlier sections of the book, that over and over again, when she's finished with one episode, she starts another one with a little piece telling you about Mr Bennett's marriage, what he's like and what he's doing. I think she probably spends more time in descriptive writing and explanatory stuff, more on the Bennets than anyone else, yeah. and even more on Mr Bennett's character. It may even be repetitive, I haven't checked. I suppose, yeah, she does keep reiterating, but each time with another tidbit of information about how such a clever and witty person ended up in this really quite unequal and unhappy marriage. Even in this final one, we have his own summary of his marriage. Mm. With his conversation with Elizabeth, that passage you picked on, mm. where he's talking about don't suffer what I've had to mm. suffer. And he simply summarises all these little snippets she's been letting us hear mm. as it goes through. I suppose his unhappy marriage could be part of the reason for it, but, you know, he's only got himself to blame for that. It was his choice. But he is, I think, if you peel away all this cleverness, he's quite selfish. He yes. definitely has favourites amongst his daughters. So in terms of selfishness, two things that really strike me, and both of them seem amusing until you think about them. Way back early, we talked about how he's known for a month that Mr Collins is coming to visit, but he only tells Mrs Bennet that morning. Yes. And then in this last chapter, it says he delighted in going to Pemberley, especially when he was least expected. <laughs> He might turn up at Pembley and they're not even there. Yes. Um, and Elizabeth won't have had notice. And, and poor old Mr Darcy might be having some quite significant political dinner or something. Mm. And up pops Mr Bennett uninvited and embarrassing the company. You'd hope that if Mr Darcy was having a big dinner... Well, for a start, that's not really Mr Bennett's thing anyway. I think he'd rather turn up unexpectedly for a family occasion. But how would he daughter. know? Yes, Exactly. Another thing is, though, he could say, no, 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 I'll be too bored with them all. I'll have a supper up in my room. Yes, or and in the library. Be, or probably in the library, yes. Yeah. Or perhaps not, but anyway, he might be tactful. He might not. But also, he might, in that sort of company, behave better. Because Darcy says it's you know, the impropriety exhibited even on occasion by your father. Yeah. He's not uniformly. Yes, so he's not going to embarrass everybody by saying really tart, mean things to Mrs Bennet. No. Which is probably what Darcy's really disapproving of most. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's quite selfish. And in terms of his children, he, setting aside what I was saying earlier about him really being quite unfair to Elizabeth, he absolutely plays favourites. And I was thinking, a lot of Jane Austen's father's aren't actually that great. Sir Walter Elliot is a worse father. But then I suddenly thought, wait a second, Sir Walter's favourite is Elizabeth, as is Mr Bennet's. The parallel of names is kind of weird. <laughs> but, yeah. but if Pride and Prejudice were the point of view of Mary, that would parallel it with Persuasion and Anne. Or if Persuasion were written from the perspective <laughs> of Elizabeth, well, that Elizabeth you'd have, yes. yes. 
big favouritism happening, but because in Pride and Prejudice it's for Elizabeth and we like Elizabeth best. And it's anyway, we see it from her point of view. Yes. Though, again, she is quite critical of her father. She She admires him, but she's pretty critical. I think any criticism she has, particularly in the first half, is outbalanced by the sense of kinship she feels with him, the enjoyment she has in talking with him. Whereas Mr Darcy sort of thinks he doesn't behave terribly well. (laughs) Yes. Of course, Jane Austen isn't exactly big on admirable fathers. The fathers of her heroines are, in general, not wonderful. Yes. Um, Well, we don't know about the father of Eleanor and Marianne. Yes. He sounds as though he was lovely, but he's... Yes. (laughs) And... (laughs) Catherine Morland's father is probably okay, but I've talked about Sir Walter Elliot, and then Emma's father is just a pain. (laughs) He's not malicious in any way. But he's a burden. Yes, he's a burden. And, of course, Fanny Price's father is just dreadful. And Sir Thomas Bartram, while he tries to do the right thing for his children, but he's also very blind to what his children are like. Yes. Jane Austen tells us that at the end. Yes, yes. So, yeah, admirable father's not really a thing. Yes. There are some good fathers in this book. I think Mr Gardner would be a good father, but the main fathers of adult children in Jane Austen are generally not wonderful. Yes. I do have this one concern with Mr Bennett that made me really cross from this particular reading where he writes to Mr Collins about Elizabeth, saying, I must trouble you once more for congratulations. Elizabeth will soon be the wife of Mr Darcy. Console Lady Catherine as well as you can. But if I were you, I would stand by the nephew. He has more to give. And just quite for anything else, it's really not very good advice. No, because for one thing, he thinks Mr Collins has done all right anyway. And he may get more from Lady Catherine. And it's absolutely nonsense to say Mr Darcy is going to be going, you know, apart from anything else, he's got an awful lot of people to help. Mm. And Mr Collins has, well, he irritated him, so, you know, really right at the beginning when he came bustling up to him at the Netherfield Ball. Mm. But so, you know, there just seems to be no, absolutely no reason why Mr Darcy would put himself out. And yet there's Mr Bennett, just to be funny, he's encouraging Mr Collins to do something that is not in... What he says is a lie. Well, what he says is not a lie. It is a truth that Mr Darcy has more to give. Yes. we assume it is. But But the implication is... The advice is... No, but the implication is that Mr Darcy would ever give it to Mr Collins Mm. when he's got, you know, he's got plenty of people to worry about. Although that does line up with what Charlotte was thinking much earlier in the book when she was comparing Mr Darcy to Colonel Fitzwilliam in terms of Elizabeth and she felt that Mr Darcy would have more influence in the church. Just to hark back on something I think I said in a much earlier episode when we were talking about Mr Collins, there's this assumption that Mr Collins will move into Longbourn when Mr Bennett dies. But, but what, it's, it's going to happen, yeah, there is, that's an yeah. assumption. Yeah. But in fact, Mr Collins is only the heir presumptive because it is not outside the bounds of possibility that Mrs Bennett could die before Mr Bennett. I mean, he even says that at one point, it could happen. And if that happens, it is not impossible that Mr Bennett would marry someone else, again, someone young and attractive, and have more children, including a son. It's perhaps unlikely, but it's not impossible. 
if you go forward to persuasion, after all, that's what they're frightened of. Yes. If Sir Walter marries Mrs Clay. Yeah. Anne is frightened of Sir Walter lowering himself to marry Mrs Clay. Anne, I don't think, gives two hoots about whether there's a son. But Mr Elliot is certainly bothered that this can happen. Yeah. Now, what I thought I'd do is try and think what might have happened to the characters in Pride and Prejudice afterwards, after they're married, after they've moved to Derbyshire, and after Jane Austen has died. So in light of historically what was happening in the 19th century, not just speculating on how many kids they might have had. Oh, no, 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 completely the world that they then had to live in. Yep. And I'm going to start by coming back to that business of how all their elegance and all their taste and all their morality is based on exploitation of people at the bottom of the social system. I'm sort of thinking of talking perhaps up to the time Queen Victoria came to the throne in 1837. In 1837, Elizabeth would have been about 47 years old. Yes, when they're in the middle of their 40s. And right through this period, you've had farming going on in the way it did before, where you have the rich landed gentry being really keen to get good rents from their farmers. So putting all the pressure on the farmers to be as prosperous as they could and the farmers turning round and paying their labourers next to nothing and turning them off when there's no work for them and then having to find terrible little houses to live in and sort of living on bread and cheese and bacon if they were lucky. So, you know, you think of all the pleasant life that Elizabeth and Jane will be having in Derbyshire is mainly at the benefit of these very much larger number of agricultural workers. But something that is a little bit interesting, probably in the light of how little, obviously, it meant to them that their country was at war, they must have gone through quite a few periods in their life during this time when they were genuinely afraid of revolution. You know, it wasn't really ever on the cards, but they certainly went through quite a lot of rioting. The worst riots were sort of the ones that happened in about 1830-31, which were the Captain Swing ones, where labourers went all around the place smashing threshing machines and so on. But those were mostly in the south of the country, but up in Derbyshire, there was quite a lot of industry. So you were getting miners, you were getting textile workers and so on, sort of protesting against new machines. I mean, if you read Shirley by Charlotte Bronte, there's quite... Which I've a... actually never been able to get through. It's the only Charlotte Bronte I haven't read. <laughs> Not, neither have I ever been able to get through it, but I've been able to get through enough at the beginning to see the pictures. That, that's Yorkshire, not Derbyshire. Yeah. So these are Luddite riots. Well, yes, you could call it Luddite. But all through this period, and I mean, it's a fairly prosperous time. They're not suffering anyway for anything that's happening. There's still, they've got the memory of the French Revolution. And so the whole of this period, there must be this feeling, well, you never know. It wasn't that they had any sympathy for these people. These were really quite viciously put down. But then the second thing I think we have to think is, Surely Darcy went into politics. It's very, very unlikely that he didn't go into politics 
Perhaps he mightn't have been a county member, which were the two most prestigious ones. But through most of this period, there were still lots of rotten boroughs around the place where, you know, anyone who felt like going to Parliament would find themselves a rotten borough. So a rotten borough is one that was really easy to get in because there were very few voting people. Yes, and that was what the first reform bill was about, getting rid of some of them. So I can't believe Darcy didn't go into Parliament, probably for a more populous one there. Anyway, we can just assume that Darcy and possibly Bingley sometimes were in Parliament, which meant that they probably spent most winters living in London. But then they no doubt went back to living a a lovely rural life. You also had particularly women of that class were taking a bigger and bigger part in looking after their tenants, but even more looking after the labourers who worked for their tenants. But when you look at what they did, and quite a lot of them spent a lot of time and quite a bit of money on it, they were not in the least interested in making those labourers richer. They thought it was perfectly legitimate for the farmers to work out what should be paid. So what they put all their efforts into is what we now call welfare. It's becoming very much the thing for squires and their ladies to be setting up village schools for the very poorest children. Mm-hmm. And by 1813-14, two societies had been set up. One was called the National Society and the other was called the British and Foreign. Basically, you had two religious parties setting them up and they just got bigger and bigger and went on doing most of the educating of the poor until in 1870 Mm -hmm. they started setting up schools for everyone. But it wasn't just education, it was was also health because at the same time as eventually the workhouses were taking over the really dreadfully poor, philanthropists were setting up hospitals. As time went on they were setting up convalescent homes, they were setting up schools for the blind, schools for the deaf. But also they were doing things like setting up libraries, setting up magic lantern slides and this sort of thing for the local community. Mm -hmm. The sort of things now that are done very largely by the government or by the local councils. Mm. And they were paving the way to those. And gradually just about everything they set up was then taken over by governments or councils. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the occupations they had when they were at home. All this they were putting money into, but they never came near wanting to raise the income of the labourers. They had to get by Mm -hmm. on whatever the market allowed the farmers to pay them. Just at the time when Darcy particularly would have been more or less in his prime, they had to go through all these major changes. They had Catholic emancipation in 1829, which was very strong. Great deal of contentious about that. It finally went through in 1849. They had the reform of Parliament in 1832, which again, enormous amount of pressure. The next year, you have the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire, the end of this long, long campaign that had been going since the abolition of the slave trade. The distinction between the abolition of the slave trade and the abolition of slavery was that even after the slave trade was abolished, you could still have slaves in your property in the Indies. Yes, the actual campaign to get it. I mean, year after year, they were bringing bills into Parliament that were being voted down. And then finally, in 1833, it got through Parliament. 
And then the next year after that, you had the new poor law, which set up the workhouses and made it so uncomfortable to be without work that was no good trying to rely as they had previously on charity. Again, another one of these ones which is looking at the poor and says that, you know, they're not doing it properly. Let's push them around. Okay, which is not exactly an empathetic approach. In a way, of course, then once that was started, you did get people setting up things like rest homes and asylums for the blind and and so on. And some of them did quite a lot of good work for them. But the original thinking behind it, perhaps not. Oh, well, no, no, no. The, The thinking of all these charities was to be good, but they were probably pretty dictatorial anyway. So that was the life they were leading, or that was the world they were thrown into. Yeah. But I suppose I'd like to say, by finishing it, that if you want to find a fictional picture of the sort of world they grew up into, probably the best place to look is Middlemarch, which was written 1860s, I've forgotten, but it starts in 1829 and goes through this whole Reform Bill period. Mm -hmm. And with the two Brooks sisters, with Dorothea and Celia, both of them marry into the landed gentry. Mm -hmm. And you can see in Dorothea the sort of concern she has for trying to get model cottages, trying to get schools set up. The sort of concern, I don't think Elizabeth and James would have been as strong as Dorothea's, but that's the world if you want to think, where were Jane and Elizabeth? What was happening to them when they were in prime of life? They were living a life like Dorothea. And except not... in a happier marriage. Oh, oh except in, well, more like <laughs> Celia. Let's say more like Celia then. Okay. And then in, in Middlemarch, I think there's some stuff about the coming of the railway lines. The, the railway lines are coming again in the 1830s, yes. So, whereas, so whereas... Elizabeth, instead of going on those lovely toll roads, they used to go up from Derbyshire to London. They're now probably getting driven to a train near Pemberley. Uh-huh. And all their guests coming up on the train. Hmm. But right at the end of their lives, they lived through into a real horror time, which was the potato famine, mm-hmm. when they were elderly, you know, mm-hmm. 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. I had been thinking that this last episode would be a good opportunity to explore the popular culture continuations of Pride and Prejudice, all the people who've written sequels to it, which started way back in 1949 with a book called Pemberley Shades. Then in the 1990s, Emma Tennant started writing them, and there's been a whole lot of fan fiction as well. But the problem is there's so much of this, and I really haven't read very much of it at all because I'm less keen on continuations than I am on adaptations and modernizations and variations. And also, I realise I have so much to say about how the various filmed versions, both adaptations and modernizations, treat the final chapters, that I decided I'm not really going to go into the continuations at all. Except to comment briefly that I think in some cases people write continuations just to explore the characters and see what happened next. But in others, I think they actually do it to look at some aspect of 19th century life and what happened after the book like you were talking about. Because two examples that come to mind with this, two high-profile examples, are P.D. James' book Death Comes to Pemberley, in which as a detective story writer, she's doing a historical detective story and actually exploring the legal system of the early 19th century. 
And and you you like that because you know I tend not to even read historical fiction much. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of Death Comes to Pemberley. I expected to like it because the new P.D. James is a big Jane Austen fan, but. I found it quite a pedestrian detective story and also there were some inconsistencies with the book. But, you know, I think that's why she was doing it. And another one that particularly comes to mind is The Independence of Miss Mary Bennett by Colleen McCulloch, which, to be honest, I really couldn't get into at all. But that seemed to me very much to be exploring the opening opportunities for women as the 19th century developed. Yes. But what I mainly want to talk about is how the filmed versions treat these final chapters, in particular the proposal and then the scene with Mr Bennett and whether or not it's included, and then how they address that last chapter, how they finish up. And one thing that actually surprised me a bit when I was watching all of the last section one after another is I hadn't realised almost without exception the filmed versions finish with Mr and Mrs Bennett and Mr or Mrs Bennett almost without exception has the last line in the film which really fascinated me. And is it the last line that was written by Jane Austen or is it the last line the scriptwriter has come up with? Sometimes one, sometimes the other. So starting with 1940 with Greer Garson and Laurence Olivier, as I've said before the ending of this is super super compressed. So after Lady Catherine leaves Darcy comes in you have a proposal scene, which is quite nice. Lawrence Olivia has his beautiful voice for delivering the proposal. Then he points over and you see that Bingley has arrived and you see Bingley's proposal. Then what it does is it cuts to Mrs. Bennett has been looking out the window and she's seen both Darcy and Bingley and her speech from the book about how wonderful it will be. The gist of that speech is there. And then she goes into another room and there you have Mary playing the piano being accompanied by a young man on the flute and Kitty talking to a soldier. And so Mrs. Bennett tells Mr. Bennett to find out how much these two men have. And the last line is her saying how wonderful it is. Three daughters married and the other two just tottering on the brink. But yeah, so that one cuts from Elizabeth and Darcy to Mr. and Mrs. Bennett and they have centre stage for the final moments. Yes. The 1980 version with Elizabeth Garvey and David Rintoul, in that one, Darcy doesn't arrive with Bingley. He sends up a note and he and Elizabeth go out walking together. There's some dialogue from the book in the proposal scene, but what really struck me about it, and I suspect without having realised it may have been one of the things influencing my view of Darcy all along, is when he makes his proposal, he's not looking at her. There is no eye contact. He is looking in a completely different direction. And I've been struggling to remember, was it like that in the first proposal? Was that why the first proposal seemed so cold and distant? But once she's accepted the proposal, he looks at her. And then, once again, this one finishes with Mr and Mrs Bennet. From the proposal scene and conversation after, it's a jump cut to Mr and Mrs Bennet. Mrs Bennet has her speech largely out of the book about three daughters married and finishes by saying, I shall go distracted. But she says that to Mr Bennet. Then Mr Bennet has his line that in the book he says to Elizabeth, but here he's saying it to Mrs Bennet, of, for what do we live but to make sport for our neighbours and laugh at them in our turn? Can I just add, that suddenly, when you read it out like that, it sounds like the end of the Summer Night's Dream <laughs> with Puck coming out and making his final speech. Yeah, it does. But in this case, it's not the final, final speech because right. after that, he has another line, again to Mrs. Bennet rather than to Elizabeth, but straight out of the book. If any young men call for Mary or Kitty, send them in for I shall be quite at leisure. And then after that, it has a long shot of Longbourn and then the final credits. So finishes with Mr. and Mrs. Bennet. 
1995 version with Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth sticks quite close to the book in that they all go out walking and then Kitty heads off to see Mariah Lucas and that's when they have their conversation. Again, you get a lot of the dialogue from the book. It's a little bit odd that they're having this conversation and surely within earshot there's a person with a cart fixing up a wheel or something. But (laughs) Oh, he was lower class. He wouldn't have (laughs) known. Yes, he didn't count. From there... This is the first one of the ones that I've seen, looking at them chronologically, where you do have that wonderful scene between Elizabeth and her father. So it cuts from the proposal scene to Mr. Bennett saying, are you out of your senses? Which I thought was a nice jump cut. But interestingly, you don't, and I was so disappointed by this, you don't have Elizabeth telling him that Darcy has paid for everything, so you don't get his line about, he will rant and storm and that will be it. So. No, well, actually, no, that was one of the things I was going to say. To what extent does anyone have Elizabeth introduce the thing by the mention of Lydia? It's mostly left out. There is one that is included in which I will get to. Something I quite liked about this is from there we have a big wedding scene. It's a double wedding of the four of them. Now, let's not go into whether this kind of big wedding is historically accurate. You, <laughs> you could tell me, but I suspect it's probably not. But what I liked about it is the clergyman sounded like he was reading from the Book of Common Prayer. And what you have in the congregation is you have most of the other married couples you've seen in it. You have Mr. and Mrs. Gardner. You have Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. You have the, the new mistress. Um, not sure about the Lucases. You have Mr. and Mrs. Collins. You have Mr. and Mrs. Hurst. And then as the clergyman is talking, there are two points when he talks about one of the purposes of marriage is for the procreation of children you suddenly cut over to a scene of Lady Catherine and Anne de Berg sitting in their room <laughs> and then when he talks about for the avoidance of sin and fornication you have a shot of Lydia and Wickham <laughs> so it's like all these good not so good really quite terrible marriages in highlighting these two sort of apex marriages yes. happening after that you have this wonderful going away scene where they get into their carriages there's snow on the ground and snow in the air and it's very picturesque and they're probably not really dressed for it and an open top carriage is not the best but let's <laughs> let's again just run with that yeah and then one of the things I really liked is as they're getting into the carriage you see Darcy and he has this really big smile on his face much more than he has in the rest of the series and from there it cuts back to Mr and Mrs Bennett who again have the last lines though not Jane Austen's lines Mrs Bennett says Three daughters married. Oh, Mr. Bennett, God has been very good to us. Then Mr. Bennett says, yes, so it would seem. And then the final shot is of Elizabeth and Darcy kissing each other. All right. So I, I liked that. As I said, you could certainly quibble about the snow and the open-top carriages. Yeah. I'm sure you could absolutely quibble about a big wedding is not how it would have been done because the big wedding is a nice way to finish. Yes. And... A big wedding is also how the Bollywood Bride and Prejudice finishes. A big Indian wedding and there's singing and dancing. But watching it closely, I was fascinated to hear who has the last line of audible dialogue because it's Jia and Balrush's wedding and Darcy doesn't seem to be with them when they're arriving. The last lines you hear are Lalita saying to Jia, where's Darcy? And her saying, he'll be there somewhere. Then the very last line is, of all people, the Carolyn Bingley character saying to Lolita, 
he's over there. And she looks over and she sees Darcy beating on a big drum, which is there to really show he has accepted and welcomed her culture. And whereas in 1995 they went away in carriages, in this version they go away riding on top of elephants and big singing and dancing finish. So now let me talk about the 2005 version with Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadgen. You may remember when I was talking back about the first proposal scene and I said suddenly we seem to have left Jane Austen and gone into Bronte territory. Well, the final proposal scene is that again dialed up to 11 yeah. because Lady Catherine has made her visit in the middle of the night for reasons best known to herself. You then have Elizabeth can't sleep so at dawn she gets up she puts an overcoat on I think still over her nightdress and she's outdoors walking across the fields and there's mist and everything very very Bronte-ish and then across the field from the mist comes Darcy and he's got his shirt half unbuttoned he's wearing a big overcoat as well and they come together and again there are some lines from the book which is really nice and then there are some lines that are not from the book which doesn't feel quite so nice and then they have their foreheads touching and the sun shining in between them but this is so not Jane Austen this is not something that Jane Austen in a million years would ever have written yes there's a place for this sort of scene in movies I don't think that place is in a Jane Austen movie but I got sucked in by it in its over-the-top Bronte-esque way I did quite like it yes it's then followed again by Elizabeth and her father Again, we have some dialogue that's not in the book. But what I did like, this look of joy that crosses Mr. Bennett's face when he realises that Elizabeth loves Darcy. It's one of those emotional touches that this film puts in. There are many, many things I don't like about this film version. But there are these moments that I really do. And this is one of them. In the 1995 version, you did have a look of contentment from Mr. Bennett when he realises she loves Darcy. But this is just a look of joy. It's unfortunate that Donald Sutherland is at least 20 years too old to be Mr. Bennett, but this moment I absolutely loved. Elizabeth walks out, and in every version of this movie except the American release, the last shot of the movie is Mr. Bennett in his library laughing quietly himself and saying his line about, if any young men come for Kitty or Mary, send them and I should be quite at leisure. Exactly the same line as the 1980 version finished on. So I liked that ending. And I said, a lot I didn't like about this film, some things I did, I quite liked that ending. Yes. I then discovered that the American release had an extra scene at the end. And I looked up that scene on YouTube, and I honestly really wish I hadn't. Some people liked the scene. I found it utterly, utterly horrible. So not Jane Austen. It's a scene of Elizabeth and Darcy at Pemberley outside possibly meant to be a post-coital scene, just talking about what Darcy will call her and that he will call her Mrs. Darcy only when he's madly, passionately happy, and then they kiss, and it was just a horrible, horrible scene, I thought. Yes. Some, some people love it. I did read that apparently it was put in because they felt an American audience needed a kiss. Now, I think this is making gross assumptions about American audiences. I also personally thought that the touching of foreheads in the scene in the fields was so much more romantic than anything in this yes. final scene. Yes. So I, as I said, I regret having watched that scene on YouTube. <laughs> I talked about Bride and Prejudice. Let me just briefly talk about the two other modernizations. The Lizzie Bennet Diaries, the web series, 
In that one, the version of Darcy's proposal to her is he offers her a job in Pemberley Digital. Oh, right. And she refuses. And she says, I don't want to be the employee dating the boss. So what happens instead is she's going to set up her own company, but she will do it (laughs) in the same city and they will become a couple. So I like that the romance is there, but she's not becoming subservient to him by joining his company, which you kind of think leading up to it is what will happen because she's nearly finished her degree and she's going to be looking for a job. So that's what you expect. And I like the way they turned that expectation around. Now, all through the 100 episodes of Lizzie Bennet Diaries, You've never actually seen Mr. or Mrs. Bennet at all, only through costume theatre with Lizzie and Charlotte and the others pretending to be them and playing parts. But right at the very end of the very last episode, when they're just planning to sign off at the end, a woman walks into the room, you only see her back, and says in a southern accent, Lizzie, what are you and dear Charlotte doing in here? And that's clearly Mrs. Bennet. So like so many of the other adaptations, This one finishes giving Mrs. Bennet the last line. One thing you'll notice with all of these versions, though, is that none of them have done what the last chapter did, which is tick off what happens to everyone afterwards. The exception to that is the Mormon version, the latter-day comedy. And I think the reason they can get away with it in this one is because this one started out with a voiceover by the Elizabeth character, and so it finishes with a voiceover by the Elizabeth character saying what happens to everyone afterwards. Does anything different happen to them? Yes, there are some differences. I won't go through all of them, but here are a couple of details of some of the characters. Right. Lydia does not end up with Wickham. She writes a self-help book and gives inspiration to thousands of young women across America. Kitty becomes a cheerleader. (laughs) Mary marries Mr. Collins. Earlier in the movie, there was one of those terrible 1990s makeover scenes where Mary loses her glasses and becomes attractive. Jane and Charles Bingley set up an orphanage in South America. Uh And Jack Wickham, who has been arrested for bigamy and for gambling, makes his escape from Nevada State Penitentiary with the assistance of a female guard and ends up working on daytime television. (laughs) Darcy was arrested for fighting with Wickham, but obviously whereas Wickham was jailed, he was set free. Elizabeth has gone to England on a scholarship. She meets up with Darcy there and they get engaged. And then the final line is Elizabeth saying that now she just has to introduce Darcy to her mother. And this is in keeping with the apparent tradition of always finishing with Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. You've been listening to Reading Jane Austen with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. So now that we've finished Pride and Prejudice, we're going to take a break for a few months, but we'll definitely be back. We really want to keep doing this. The question is, which book we'll do next? I thought we could look at Sense and Sensibility, Because when Jane Austen was deciding what book to publish first, she chose that one over Pride and Prejudice. But I think we'd all agree that Pride and Prejudice is more polished. So I thought that by looking at Sense and Sensibility next, we could try and identify areas where she improved. Yes, I think that would be a good idea. But I've got a real yen to get onto sort of my favourites among the more mature novels and then back to the more journeyman works. That would mean Mansfield Park next. If any of you have preferences on what you'd like us to do next, please let us know. You can comment on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen or our website, readingjaneaustin.com or you can email us at readingjaneaustin.com The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and the summarising the sentence concept was adapted from E.L. Konigsberg's book Silent to the Bone. 
Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. We'll be back in a couple of months, reading another book by Jane Austen.